welcome to a new episode of the Spooky Scotty podcast, the podcast that talks about the paranormal, the criminal, and the just plain weird about the state of Wisconsin. Um, If you were already following the podcast, you may have noticed that I um, skipped our last episode, which means it's been about a month since I put out an episode. Um, the week I was going to record the episode was just really, really hectic and lots of stuff happened and then I got laryngitis and literally like sounded like a kid going through puberty and really just couldn't, um, couldn't record. I didn't want to put anyone through that. So now my voice is 90% better, and uh, it's time for a new episode. Before I get into today's topic, um, I just did want to mention that I do have an event coming up in July. It's, look, it's really cold and very snowy here, so I'm just thinking happy thoughts in July in Chicago is the happy thought for me right now. Um, There is a podcast festival, the True Crime Podcast Festival, happening on July 13th. And um, you can learn more about it if you go to their site, which is TCPF, like True Crime Podcast Festival, tcpf2019.com. Um, I am officially a registered podcast for that festival. I'm very excited to be going there. Um, I'm not entirely sure what that all entails. All I know is that I get to be, quote, recognized at the festival with designated podcaster gear, unquote. So I don't know if that means like a table or a booth or something. I don't know. Um, I will let you know if slash when I find out, but that'll again be happening in Chicago on July 13th. It's just a one day thing. Um, and you know, if you're going, let me know. Let's hang out. Uh, I might be getting some gear, like some cool, uh, bottle openers and magnets and buttons and shit and give that away while I'm there. If you find me, we'll have to work something fun out. Um, and I'm really excited about that. I'm really excited about that. I love Chicago. It's one of my favorite places. And honestly, if I had the money, I would just move to there. I want to move to there. Um, I'll be honest, like a large part of why I wouldn't mind living there is I love the subway. I I don't know. I don't know what's wrong with me. Um, I love like a lot of local businesses to Chicago, like Do Right Donuts. They make bomb gluten-free donuts and like, it's like heaven. It's like heaven. I actually really even like driving in downtown Chicago. I there are things wrong with me that I cannot explain. But that's not why you're here. 
you're here to talk about the Taliesin murders. Oh yeah, Frank Lloyd Wright had some shit go on in his life, let me tell you. So, Frank Lloyd Wright was born Frank Lincoln Wright in 1867 in a town called Richland Center. And that's about 90 minutes west and very slightly north of Madison. Um, His family was a family of Welsh descent. So a lot of things that he did, he would put in nods to um, his heritage and his family's background. And because he felt that it was very important. After spending a few childhood years in Massachusetts, Wright's family moved back to Madison, where he grew up. Um, He changed his middle name to Lloyd after his parents split in 1885, and it was a nod to his mother's family, the Lloyd Joneses. Um, I I think he was really upset with his father after that split. Um, He actually never saw his father again, and it was just a, a really nice nod, I think, to the supportive nature of his mother's family and and honoring her too and carrying that name with him. In 1886, he attended the University of Wisconsin here in Madison, and he took some classes part-time for a couple of semesters, but then left without getting a degree. He was later granted an honorary one from the university in 1955. In 1887, he moved to Chicago and started to work as an architect. Um, you know, the architecture movement in Chicago was really big at the time, especially because, you know, even over a decade later, they were really still working on rebuilding from the fire in 1871. So there was a lot of space for growth. There was a lot of need for housing um, and and for really cool buildings, which, oh God, Chicago. I love you, Chicago. Why do I love you so much? <sighs> I don't know. But so he, he really thrived in Chicago, learned from a lot of other great architects and really built his life there. Um, Of course, he built houses and buildings all around the world, but that was really, you know, his base of operations for a really long time. Now, there's a lot that we could say, again, about his work in Chicago, about his work around the world, about his influence on, you know, modern architecture movements. Like, this is not that kind of a podcast, and as fancy as that stuff is, um, it's just, it's a lot to go through. Um, like, researching this episode, I feel like the A&E show biography would have to do a couple of hours to really even talk about all of Frank Lloyd Wright's life and do it justice. So... Uh, you know, in the interest of time and not wanting to drone on and on, we're not going there. But we are talking about Taliesin. He built Taliesin near his childhood home, 
1911, and he named it after um, this character in Welsh mythology who was a poet, magician, and priest. And there's um, a family motto that was taken from another Welsh poet who had a son named Taliesin. The motto, which I'm going to butcher because I don't know Welsh, um, maybe I won't even try. It translates to the truth against the world. And it's really still used a lot today in Wales, um, in, in like Druidism. And I think it's just a beautiful saying because I'm a nerd. Taliesin is set on 800 acres. And the estate itself comprises a number of structures. So from now on, when I talk about Taliesin, I will be talking about the main house. Now, the main house is approximately 12,000 square feet. Holy shit. And it's designed in Wright's prairie style. So the prairie style is basically a style of building that emulates the prairies. Um, It's kind of a low building. It's very boxy. There's a lot of horizontal planes. The roofs are flat. um, And it just feels like it might fit in really well in the prairies. It also included a separate studio for Frank to do his work um, that was right there. Uh, The estate also included... The Hillside Homeschool, which was run by his aunts. Um, The Romeo and Juliet Windmill, which he built in 1896. A farming facility named the Midway Barn. And then um, a house that he built for his sister. And he designed it in 1907, and it's named Tanny Dairy. And that building we're actually going to talk about later, too. But really, the main, the main players architecturally are Taliesin, the main house, and Tanny Dairy. So he built the home for himself, but also for the woman he had left his wife and six children with. <laughs> uh, for Martha Borthwick, whose nickname was Mama. So he meets her in Chicago. He had been commissioned by this businessman and a neighbor, Edwin Cheney, to design a house in 1903. And he meets Mrs. Cheney, a.k.a. Mama. And she was a person that Frank could have very intellectual conversations with and she stayed with him. You know, they could have these grandiose conversations about architecture, about philosophy, and they really gelled well together intellectually. And finding someone who was his intellectual equal is really attractive to him. The pair runs off to Europe together, uh, to Italy, and Edwin is like, you know, if, if this is what makes you happy, Mama, I will grant you a divorce. That is okay. Catherine, uh, Frank's wife, decides she's not going to do that. 
Um, Frank had had a history of cheating on her. And she was pretty sure that this was going to blow over. That this was just another in a long line of flings. And, you know, everything be damned if she's going to give up everything that she's seen Frank through and and give up his support for for just another hoochie mama. Oh my god, mama. Hoochie mama. <gasps> I didn't even mean that. Um the pair comes back from Europe then and Wright uses his mother's name. You know, he says I I want to build my mom a house to to buy the land that Taliesin is built on. This helps avoid a lot of publicity in the early stages of building the house. Um, and to the outside world, he puts on a face like he is reconciling with Catherine, even though the truth is is much different than that. Press later would dub Taliesin the Love Cottage. Locals did not want them in the neighborhood. Uh, they were very upset the couple was criticized by church ministers and even the superintendent of the community schools. Um, all of these things really have no effect on Frank. He's He doesn't give a shit. Um, <laughs> honestly, he's like, you know, y'all can do your thing. It's fine, but I'm going to do my thing. The townspeople in Spring Green, which is where Taliesin is really located, um, you know, they call the sheriff. They're like, hey, he's living in sin. He's a horrible example to the community. And they want him to arrest Frank. But, you know, that isn't something he could do. That's not the function of a sheriff. Um, so really, they, they started living their life very well. Um, Mama's two kids from her marriage to Edwin would come visit and um, so would Frank's six kids. The kids weren't there all the time, but it was something that that it had enough space there that they could come visit. And their lives were were really nice for for a while there. Um, until August fifteenth of nineteen fourteen, and shit hit the fan. So Frank is in Chicago. He's working on building Midway Gardens. Um, Some articles talk about that his son John was with him. Others don't mention the son at all. Um, So who knows? But, uh, you know, regardless, Frank is in Chicago working on the gardens. And Essentially, all hell breaks loose. Um, One of the servants unleashes an attack that winds up claiming several lives, leaving Taliesin, the main house, in rubble, and completely devastating Frank. Um... The, the attacker is 30-year-old Julian Carlton, and he works on the estate. He's originally from Barbados. And at lunchtime, Martha and two of her children 
from from Cheney's from the Cheney marriage. Um, eight year old Martha and twelve year old John are visiting, and they're they're sitting down to eat on the porch. In the main dining room, um, about 30, 25, 30 feet away, the laborers and draftsmen are around a table and they're about to be served lunch by Julian. Um, now, a little bit more about Julian. He's both a handyman and a servant. He spent the summer waiting tables and performing housework at Taliesin, but his wife Gertrude did most of the cooking. After serving soup to Martha and uh, the children, Martha and Martha and John, um, Carlton tells his wife to leave the house and he returns to the porch. And he's got a hatchet. He attacks Martha and the children. Um, So they're eating and Julian sneaks up behind Mama, Martha, um she's she's at the table and he buries a hatchet in her skull he then attacks the children and um he he quickly kills mama and then john but martha runs and he has to really catch up with her um and then you know wax her in the head four times very powerfully um the blows weren't fatal even though they were very powerful but they absolutely were incapacitating she was unable to do anything um and in the fire that's to come she winds up being essentially burned alive after attacking the three of them Carlton goes to serve lunch to the men in the sitting room and they're eating um, and talking and enjoying company and the 19 year old draftsman Herbert Fritz notices something unusual Uh, he says we heard a swish as the water was thrown through the screen door then we saw fluid coming under the door it looked like dishwater excuse me it looked like dishwater it spread out all over the floor uh by the time they realized it was gasoline carlton had already struck and dropped a match into the puddle and started the fire he bolted the door from the outside preventing them from escaping um as they are burning And on fire, the men try to jump out of the windows, and Carlton is actually waiting there with his axe to attack the people coming out. So the the other victims um, are Ernest Weston, 13, the son of carpenter William Weston, Milwaukee draftsman Emile Burdell, who's 26, Handyman David Lindblom, who's 38, who escapes but later dies from his burns. And Talia's foreman Thomas Bunker, who is 68. So William Weston, the carpenter, and um, Herbert Fritz survive the attack and together walk half a mile to the nearest telephone to raise the alarm. 
with help on the way, Weston returns to Taliesin to try to put out the fire. Um, But at that point, there was really no way for him to do it on his own. By the time help arrives, the main house is destroyed. Um, All of this work that they've all put in and this beautiful home is gone. Miraculously, Frank's studio is intact. They discover Carlton hiding in or around the furnace. He um, realized that it was impossible for him to escape and tried to drink hydrochloric acid in a suicide attempt, but um, it didn't work, (laughs) which as awful as all of the things that he just did were hydrochloric acid, like drinking that is a terrible way to go. Um, And it just makes me wonder if at that time he was feeling any remorse or guilt about what he did Or if it was just, oh, this is the closest thing to me. Um, Because most people, I think when you are feeling guilty or remorseful or upset about something you've done, um, if you are going to plan a suicide or some other form of self-harm, you really want it to hurt. You want to suffer a bit um, kind of in exchange for the harm that you've done. But again, (laughs) didn't work. The sheriff um, and and kind of a posse that he's thrown together um, arrive, get Carlton, and get him to the Dodgeville jail. And they are pursued by three carloads of men with guns. So this was not an easy thing. Um, People wanted to kill him right away, wanted to lynch him. And um, the sheriff is very lucky that he was able to get Carlton to the jail. Now, Carlton actually dies from starvation within um, the next couple months, seven weeks. And all of that despite medical attention. Um, They really wanted him to live, to be able to, you know, face justice. And that didn't happen. He did make two court appearances in kind of the preliminary, uh, you know, setup, but never stood trial and really never explained his motive for the attack. There are a number of various theories. Um, His wife, Gertrude, said that he had become increasingly paranoid in the weeks prior to the attack and was even going so far as to keep the hatchet in a bag next to the bed. There were rumors um, that he was being harassed by some of the workers. Um, there had been an argument a few days before over, like, a saddle on a horse. I'm not sure what that entailed. Um, but th- there are also rumors that the workers were incredibly racist towards him and xenophobic, so that could have been an issue, too. He according to one report, had a tendency to stay up at night and stare out the window holding a butcher's knife. I'll be honest, I think that one is myth. I don't feel like that is realistic. Um, but it's a thing. One of the surviving workers told police that Mama had told the Carltons they were going to be let go. And the killer's wife 
did confirm they were supposed to take a train back to Chicago later that night. So to me, that seems like the strongest theory. There is... (laughs) This is ridiculous. Um, There is a theory that Frank somehow hired uh, Carlton to murder Mama. Um, to rid himself of an unwanted lover. And others, you know, said, well, it's just, it's just God's way of handling it. Like, they shouldn't have been together anyway. They were living in sin. Now it's taken care of. Which is just really ridiculous. Um, but like I said, I think the, the strongest theory is the one about them being let go and... If you don't have another job to go to, what are you supposed to do? Um, and and someone who might have already been on edge getting that news. I mean, people act drastically for far fewer reasons than that. Upon witnessing what her husband had done, Gertrude leaves. She flees. And winds up being apprehended by police later. She's ultimately acquitted of being an accomplice and um, disappears, which is honestly good for her. Now, Frank comes home that night and he actually brings Edwin Cheney with him. Um, like I said earlier, they had been neighbors, they were friends, and I think think there really wasn't that much animosity between them um everything that I've read seems to suggest that the two of them and mama all got along fine um and and that there wasn't there wasn't any difficult at least at least publicly there wasn't any difficulty between the three of them so it it doesn't really surprise me that that Frank comes home from Chicago and and brings Cheney with him. Frank describes the scene as a devastating scene of horror and said that he wanted to fill the grave himself when he saw Mama in her grave. He buries her in the family chapel graveyard in Spring Green and shortly thereafter winds up Uh, publishing a letter in the local newspaper to thank the community for their support. Um, But he also takes the time to defend Mama and to show that that he's not going to be driven out. Um, I think that he was concerned about some of those reactions to what had happened, the idea that living in sin brought this on, etc., and really wanted to push back against those. He promised to rebuild Taliesin in her memory, and he does. Um, By the end of 1914, the residential wing, so, you know, the main house, is rebuilt, and it's labeled Taliesin II. Because of what happened, though, and I think the, the emotional terror that caused for him, he doesn't live at the property um, again until 1922. So a lot of time has passed. And by the end of 1914, though, he falls in love 
with another woman, Maud Miriam Noel. And she had actually written him a condolence letter over what had happened. Um, and, you know, the, their relationship started from there, which I think is really sweet, actually. Um, it's just really sweet. So the two marries in... They marry in 1923. Um, Catherine had finally agreed to a divorce in 19... Well, probably about the time he meets Maud or early in 1922. Um, the only stipulation is that he is not to marry for a year. So that's why they waited. In 1924, though, very quickly, he leaves Maud. Um, she struggled a lot with substance misuse and um, really needed a lot of help and wouldn't accept it. He then meets Olga Ivanova Lazvich Milanov, who is also just called Ogivana. So they kind of just smushed her first two names together, which works. Um, he meets her shortly thereafter, and later he builds Taliesin West in Scottsdale, Arizona for her. They have a daughter. Giovanna, um, who's born at Taliesin at the end of 1925, but not before faulty wiring leads to another fire at Taliesin um, in April. Wright's studio, again, is miraculously spared. Um, several collections that he had of Japanese art, though, um, were destroyed in that fire, and he estimated that damage to be two hundred and fifty to five hundred thousand dollars, just of losing that alone. Which, ooh, at that time, like, I didn't look about the inflation, but like, if things are really cheap, and you've lost that much, like, the inflation has to be ridiculous. So he rebuilds a third time, and he uses um, some bits of the rubble from the ruins like he did the first time. He, um, you know, he's still upset, obviously. This is the second fire this house has been through, um, and it's got to be deflating, but... Um, Taliesin 3 is the structure that stands today. He and Olgavana were married in 1928. Although, to back up slightly, in 1927, he does experience some financial problems and there is a foreclosure on the building by the Bank of Wisconsin. Um, he is able to reacquire the building with the help of friends and then reoccupy it in November 1928. And that's where he lived for the rest of his life. Um, he did wind up spending the winters at Taliesin West after that was finished being built in 1937. Um, just to kind of round out Frank's story here. On April 4th, 1959, he is hospitalized for abdominal pains. 
He goes into an operation on the 6th to alleviate that. He seems to recover, but then dies quietly and rather quickly on the 9th. After his death, um, his, his wife, Olgavana, wanted Wright and herself and then her daughter from her first marriage to all be cremated and interred together um, at Taliesin West where they were building a memorial garden. But Frank's wishes, at least in, in like the most recent will, um, had him laying into the family cemetery, which is next to Unity Chapel in Spring Green. And she didn't take any legal steps against it. Um, she didn't want to necessarily, you know, move his body or... Um, upset family members or even the state of Wisconsin but in 1985 um, the members of the Taliesin Fellowship do remove Frank from his grave cremate him and then send him to Scottsdale to be interred at that memorial garden so his original grave site here in Wisconsin is still there still marked he's just not in it All of the stuff that happened during the murders, um, you know, it's very, very traumatic. Um, a fire alone is traumatic, but to have these murders, to have a loved one murdered, um, to have children murdered on your property, it's not great. Um, <laughs> Not something you should probably aim for. So, Tanaderi, um, the house built for Frank's sister, is said to be haunted. Um, it is where people were brought during the fire. Um, people who had not yet succumbed to their injuries or people who were simply just injured were brought to that house to be um, looked after to have you know minimal first aid done before responders showed up and as a result a lot of people you know passed there um or at least their bodies were there after they had passed so the main spirit who is seen is mama herself She's usually dressed in a long white gown, and although she is peaceful, she seems restless and lost. Doors and windows will open and close by themselves. Lights will turn on and off. Uh, doors will slam. And there's other phenomena, but they're often accompanied by smells of smoke and gasoline, as well as the voices of children. One theory is that Mama's stuck there because she can't seem to find where her kids went. Um, I think that's a pretty common theory in most, like, uh-oh, Mom died and the kids died kind of situations. I don't know. I think 
one of the things could also be just that she loved it there. She loved it on that property. And maybe Tanaderi was the piece she still recognized the most. You know, Taliesin's been rebuilt twice now. <laughs> and so maybe it doesn't look like it did when she lived there. And maybe she doesn't want to, to haunt that building that much anyway because of the trauma that happened there. Uh, so maybe it's just a matter of this is where I know I would have been safe. This is where people I trusted lived. Um, I don't know. I think it's an interesting question as to why someone haunts a specific location. Today, Taliesin stands as a testament to Frank Lloyd Wright, um, to his work, to his perseverance. Um, there, it, it's essentially set up as a museum to Frank Lloyd Wright um, to preserve and, and share his work. You can go on a couple of different tours of the 800-acre property. There are programs you can um, enjoy from performing arts to um, other cultural events, culinary events. There's summer youth workshops. Also on the grounds um, is the School of Architecture at Taliesin. That was formally created in 1932, um, when about two dozen apprentices came to live and learn from Frank at Taliesin. And, um, you know, some newer buildings were constructed to accommodate them, including like a dining hall and some other things um, near that hillside school that his aunts formerly had run. Um, it's, I haven't been able to go on the tours yet, but I think it's... Um, quite a fantastic thing. Frank set up this Taliesin Preservation Society before he died um, with his wife, Olga Vada, and they really championed, you know, preserving his work and sharing his work with others. And I think it's quite fantastic that he had the foresight to do that because a lot of people don't. Um, but also that he had the means to do that because, again, a lot of people don't. Um, a lot of artists aren't necessarily recognized for their talents while they're alive either, which I'm sure doesn't make it any easier um, if people don't think you're great and you don't think you're that great, then you probably don't have a lot of money and, <laughs> you know, it just makes it that much more difficult. So, those are the murders of Taliesin. I hope you enjoyed listening to them. Um, I will include some links in the show notes for you to learn more, um, as well as kind of the sources that I used, and hoping to include some photos. Um, I will at least include a photo of Taliesin um, back in the heyday before it was ravaged by fires. So that you can at least kind of plan out in your mind. I don't know. I'm a nerd. So I like to look at that stuff and plan out in my mind like where everything happened and and have a better understanding of everything from a spatial aspect. 
join us again in two weeks. Um, that would be do, 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 March 2nd for a new episode. And um, I am also working on a Jamie Kloss update episode that I am hoping to have out next week. So hopefully by the 23rd, um, just to, you know, give an update on some of the things that have gone on in that case. Thanks so much for listening. Um, I know I say it in the outro, but if you could take a second to like review, that would be great because that helps other people find the podcast. And the more people listen, the more like maybe I'll feel like I need to do things with this. (laughs) I need y'all to keep the pressure on me, okay? Um, and, and also make sure to find the social medias because... I have been sharing a lot more on there um, while I've been recuperating with my laryngitis. Have a great rest of your day, and I will talk to you in two weeks. You just listened to the Spooky Scotty podcast. It's produced every two weeks by me, Kirsten Schultz. The intro-outro music is from Purple Plant. You can find show notes and more over at spookyscani.podbean.com, including a transcript in case you missed anything. Take a minute and rate and subscribe if you can. You'll help more people see the show by rating, and you won't miss a single episode if you subscribe. And that's pretty dope. You can support the show over at patreon.com slash podcast, and you can email me anything you'd like me to know at podcast at gmail.com. In the meantime, sleep tight and don't let the badgers bite.